This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast. And I'm here with Tim Pierce, one of the speakers in our uh, summer school, uh, the 2013 version of it. And Tim is a great specialist in uh, olfactory systems, both their biological versions and artificial versions. Um, so, Tim, what's so special about natural olfaction? Great. Well, I was very pleased to be here. It's very exciting talks. So, natural, uh, natural olfaction. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, one of the most amazing features, I guess. Well, there are many, but uh, you have to you have to consider pretty amazing the uh, the ability to detect literally thousands of molecules, and uh, beyond that, even to the point where if you made a new uh, molecule this week, uh, you'd be able to uh, if it was within certain mass criteria, which is very wide anyway, between. 30 Daltons and 300 Daltons in uh, molecular mass, then you would almost certainly have uh, some kind of response to this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has this, one. Of, I think one of the most amazing properties of the olfactory system is this xenobiotic or foreignness property that it's designed from the ground up mm-hmm. uh, to detect uh, all sorts of uh, foreign signals that uh, may not be... Uh, have some priors, right? So you, mm-hmm. your prior in the system is very flat. You don't know necessarily in advance which uh, chemical signals out there in the world are going to be uh, extremely relevant mm-hmm. for you behaviorally, uh, and you need to have as broad a sampling as possible on this without mm-hmm. making uh, necessarily prior assumptions. Right, but now, uh, as a functional feature, that that's not specific to olfaction, right? I mean, also my visual system can can detect novel stimuli or my auditory system. Um, so that's not necessarily outstanding, is it? Um, no, but maybe in the sense of just the diversity of the basic uh, basic stimuli, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and and also, of course, I mean, this is also inherent in the architecture of the system because uh, I mean, basically, you've got three three receptors or four receptors for vision in certain animals uh, and humans um and you know which has a certain cost uh in terms of the genetic real estate but when you look at olfaction it's more than one percent of the genetic real estate is dedicated just for this reason mm-hmm. so there has to be a good reason to deploy all of that uh diverse coding Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you can have a very broad sampling. If there was a simple answer to it, uh, I'm sure it would have been found mm-hmm. uh, in the mm-hmm. in, in the sort of uh, evolution, genetic ar- architecture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but now in your uh, in your talk, you mentioned uh, five five outstanding features like concentration dynamics, temporal dynamics, the specificity and sensitivity, um, also the the ability to exploit olfaction in an active sense as an ac- active perceptual system and to deal with with object recognition in a high dimensional space right so these were the f- yeah. five um outstanding issues and uh, we will discuss those in a little bit more more detail but the other thing that was sort of surprising is that you also 
emphasize the so-called uh, retronasal olfaction. So what, what, what's the difference? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, most of us are, are used to sniffing things in the world through so-called orthonormal uh, olfaction, which mm -hmm. is through the normal route through your external nares, but maybe less people are aware that we're, uh, a lot of your olfactory signals is coming when you're eating, Through uh, through volatile compounds going up through the back of the nose, mm -hmm. uh, interacting with the nasal uh, mucosa that way, um, and uh, well, the interesting point is is that depending on the flow, it seems that you get a different experience uh, whether the compounds are coming from internally during ingestion or whether they're coming externally. Mm -hmm. Even if you control for the fact that, um, obviously, eating things has a gustatory input as well, which is combined. Uh, but even if you control for that, then you still have a very different um, olfactory percept depending upon the direction of the mm -hmm. of the odor. So, does but this retronasal olfaction does it give it another quality of of odor sensation or odor processing, or does it fall the same same bag of molecular recognition and processing as mm. the orthonormal version? Yeah, it's a It's a good question. Uh, there have been many studies to show that the the percept is very different. So during retronasal olfaction, you will perceive different qualities. hasn't really been um, specified precisely how that changes. But we also know that the the neural uh, dynamics, the even at the receptor sheet, is is very different patterns that are mm -hmm. elicited by, by exactly the same chemicals just from the fact whether they're occurring retronasally or orthonasally. So the obvious explanation for this is must must be to do with um, detecting whether things you're eating are good things to eat mm -hmm. or, or externally whether they're things that you need to find to, right. to eat or avoid, I guess, mm -hmm. right? So there, there, there does seem to be good reasons why, mm -hmm. why this might be the case. Right. But so now... Well, One one interesting observation that that you uh, put forward um, is also that in some sense human olfaction might not be of equal sensitivity as many other animals, but you you do believe that the, the basic forms of processing and strategies in which we use olfaction might be rather similar. Is that fair to say? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, it's pretty clear. People like Nick Straussfeld and so on, they've gotten into incredible detail in the fossil records for different olfactory systems from uh, mammals all the way down to uh, very extremely simple uh, forms, of, uh, forms of life have shown that there are a number of key uh, generic architectural features which are crucial to, mm -hmm. to building olfactory systems. You know, one of these being uh, glomeruli where there's these convergence of uh, sensory signals uh, at the first stage of processing which is completely common to all uh, animals achieving this there also seems to be um, a genuine necessity for a first stage of processing that um, that, uh, that 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 has lateral inhibition at an early stage which somehow is thought to sharpen tuning and also impose all sorts of dynamical properties on top and um, There's also this feature in most animals of a very uh, uh, a mixed specificity of certain receptors uh, being highly tuned to certain compounds and other receptors being very widely tuned to large groups of compounds. It seems mm -hmm. to be this also seems to be common. So, yeah, there are a number of properties that it seems if you're going to build. Um, it's a nice thought experiment. If you say take a blank piece of paper and think, if we're going to build um, 
an olfactory system without any prior knowledge of what animals uh, do, uh, given that you want to detect huge diversity of compounds with certain high specificity and high sensitivity to certain groups of compounds that are important to you behaviorally, you know, what sort of strategies uh, would, would you have to do to achieve that? And um, I think these common architectural sort of motifs that you see uh, from the fossil record sort of uh, underpin how, how you might approach that also from an engineering sense. Mm-hmm. So, but then in, in, so that basically means whether we, whether we go from Drosophila to humans, in your mind we will find common design principles Certainly. behind this olfactory system, Certainly. right? So that, that, that's also interesting. Uh, so it's high, it would suggest it's rather strongly conserved. Um, Certainly. So now in the human case, so here we go. Uh, we have our nasal cavity. I have an, my epithelium in there through which I have the sensilla sticking from the olfactory receptor neurons. Uh, these olfactory receptor neurons are then projecting their, their axons through the skull into the olfactory bulb where they form these glomeruli that you, that you described. And then these glomeruli in turn get read out by these mitral cells and then send this information to other parts of the brain. Now, in in um, the mammalian case, what do we know about the levels of processing along this hierarchy? So, for instance, would you say the olfactory percept in the human case is already defined in the olfactory bulb? Or does it require higher levels of processing? Does it require interaction between different levels? Yeah, this is this is a really good question. I mean... In in humans, it's pretty clear that the first stage of processing the olfactory bulb uh, is thought to do a number of things. One of the most key features seems to be sharpening the representation, so decorrelating the signals at an early stage is obviously very important for um, uh, for uh, for discrimination of different odor compounds. Um, but I'm not sure I would say this is the place where the percept uh, comes from because it's a very act- it clearly has to be an active process. And it's also demonstrated that in higher processing centers like the piriform cortex, with mu- they have much more sparse representations of, of these odors, which again is um, a sharpening the tunings even further. Um, that has been uh, already demonstrated quite clearly to be related to odor memories and also learning. And the the other important aspect is that these higher centers, as we see in many other sensory systems in the brain, are are are, are enforcing a, a top-down processing on the olfactory bulb itself on the earlier stage to change the gain control and mm-hmm. do various things. So... Um, it's also been clear that, for instance, in orbitofrontal cortex, that this is also an important aspect of mm-hmm. uh, the perceptual aspect. So I would say it's really at these more cortical levels mm-hmm. that you, if you were if you were to think about percepts, this is where you'd probably right. look. So in the human case, how many of these receptor neurons do we have sticking their sensilla in my... Yeah, so <clears throat> the total re- real estate at its peak in, in rats was about a thousand different diversity of... Uh, receptor uh, GPCR types and the story is that uh, humans are basically our sense of smell is deteriorating Mm -hmm. in evolutionary terms it's not under sufficient uh, selective pressure Mm -hmm. basically and the story is that uh, something like about 600 of those thousand receptors have become fairly defunctional now Mm -hmm. they've got introns within them 
junk DNA and so on, that means that they're, they're, they're not functioning as olfactory receptors anymore. So we're left with, in humans, the story is somewhere between three and 400 um, mm -hmm. functional Is receptors. there any idea uh, when in evolution this sort of started to happen? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know the answer to that okay. in evolutionary terms. Mm. Yeah, but, but there, um, there are very nice um, studies that have been done which show phylogenetic. Uh, so, you, so you can, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but you can look at the phylogenetic uh, similarities. There have been mm -hmm. a number of papers where um, effectively you're looking at sort of dendrogram of mm -hmm. similarity of receptors mm -hmm. between different animals. Right. But for um, primates, do they also show the same deterioration? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So primates are in mm. a similar class to okay. us. That they're right. going down. So, so, so then the human case, I have, let's say, 300 mm. uh, receptor neuron types expressed. Mm. Then how many individual receptor neurons would I have in my uh, uh, epithelium? Yeah, so the epithelium has between 10 and 100 million in total. In, for so, humans? Yeah. Okay. So you've got, you know, a large... A large number of the same type expressed uh, many times. And red, how many? Uh, they probably have similar numbers, slightly more with a higher density because obviously right. crammed into a smaller area. And things like dogs and pigs would have at least an order of magnitude mm -hmm. greater than that right. in terms of numbers. Mm -hmm. And probably slightly more different types as well. Because, right. Uh, yeah. Okay, so now, so, now, so now we have these, um, let's say, 300 different types of, of receptor neurons. They, as a population, they're active. We also know that they are all highly specific in how they get integrated it at the next stage in this glomeruli. Glomeruli are very much specific to neuron receptor, to the olfactory mm -hmm. receptor neuron types, right? Roughly. Um, and now, with that, also in case of, of humans, let's say we can at least detect about what is it, 10,000 different molecules with this. Well, yeah, it's not so much molecules. There was this this number of ten thousand uh, sort of uh, flies around olfaction. You're always hearing this number of ten thousand. It has kind of a funny story, mm -hmm. actually. That it, originally this number of ten thousand came from uh, perfumers, I think, who were asked uh, how many different, uh, say, different perceptual qualities or different perceptual uh, nuances could you have uh, for a trained perfumer, and some perfumer just sort of this number of 10,000, they thought there might be a possibility of 10,000 mm -hmm. different perceptions that you might be able to have. Um, and that's about the limit of the evidence for it, really. And that n number has been sort of bandied, mm -hmm. bandied about in uh, olfaction ever since. So it doesn't necessarily correspond to the number of chemicals. Uh, and in fact, you, could, you can have almost an infinite variety of uh, molecules uh, that you could that you could uh, have a have a smell response to, but, but I'm sure in 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 the let's say the ethology of olfaction, uh, people must have made some sort of taxonomy of the of the whole collection of molecules that are detectable in principle by our olfactory system. So how large would that set be? And sure, how, yeah. how is that organized? We know at least uh, a few thousand mm -hmm. uh, different uh, chemically active olfactory active uh, mm -hmm. molecules mm -hmm. that would give you uh, that would give you a response in some. And way. how big a subset is that of all of all molecules? Um, well, all molecules, of course, that's including going way up to, uh, you know, massive proteins, uh, mm -hmm. 30,000, you know, Daltons, mm -hmm. you know, 30 kilodaltons, mm -hmm. enormous molecular machines, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because we're only looking at quite a narrow bandwidth. Um, there's actually an interesting story about that. 
Um, at our recent nice uh, odor maps uh, workshop, we heard that um, someone did an analysis of the the lower end of this quite narrow spectrum between 30 and 300 mm -hmm. Daltons of mm -hmm. what we can appreciate. Mm -hmm. And they looked at all the molecules down uh, at the bottom end uh, in terms of... Um, uh, in terms of our response to them, and they they looked at the molecules just under the threshold, so just under 30, 30 Daltons, and they called these um, infrasmells. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then they looked at the molecules just above the three hundred uh, threshold, and they called these ultrasmells. Mm -hmm. You know, in line with vision, as you of can course, imagine. Of course, yes. And um, and it showed some interesting things. In fact, that the, the there's there seems to be. Uh, a kind of story that these infrasmells may share with them a principle of kind of toxicity mm -hmm. that that uh, that maybe these lighter molecules are getting towards an area of toxicity, and this may also be a guiding principle in terms of uh, how our perception of odors may be organised. Mm -hmm. That uh, we're obviously detecting these to be safe or not. Right. Yeah. No, but it's, but it should be telling us something about also the specific niche for which we have been optimized, right? So why, yeah. why? because it's, so what, but it is interesting that we're not sensitive to all possible molecules because actually in the big picture, it's actually a very small subset of all molecules we could ever encounter. So why is this subset then behaviorally yeah. and also from a f perspective of fitness, evolutionary fitness, yeah. no, it's so really relevant? A, really a good question. I mean, I, th I think it's probably limited if uh, by, by most things is that once you get beyond 300 Daltons, things uh, don't become volatile anymore, right? They're heavier molecules. Mm -hmm. uh, they become less volatile. So basically your chances of being able to uh, get these into the air to even be able to smell them at all starts to become very limited, right? Mm -hmm. So you're sort of limited by the physics. Mm -hmm. Now, below uh, below 30 Daltons, I'm not quite sure why that lower limit is, right? Because you certainly can you certainly can have uh, lighter molecules than that yeah. that could have uh, some Could it be a limitation of biophysics of the receptor neuron? Um, for the lighter molecules? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. It may also be that uh, many of these... Lighter molecules, uh, you don't necessarily want to be detecting, like uh, extremely light molecules, uh, oxygen, CO2, and so on, are so common in the world mm -hmm. that potentially maybe they would flood the whole system. So maybe you need to be more selective mm -hmm. to these compounds. Although the common story in olfaction is that carbon dioxide doesn't have a smell. In fact, it does have a slight smell, and mm -hmm. that may be through interacting with other molecular mm -hmm. things. But but uh, probably these extremely light molecules, maybe there just isn't a behavioral reason uh, for responding to them on the yeah, basis that they're Yeah, but of course with the circular the time, argument, right? Because you're saying, look, well, we don't smell them because we don't smell them. I mean, that it's doesn't logical really, right? in that way. So, so but at the end, of, but no, the argument may be, I mean, if they're there all the time, they don't give you any information, right? So mm, in the air, yeah, but okay. But also that argument is, is not so convincing, right? So, but for instance... Is it possible that we have molecules binding to our receptors but not leading to sufficient activation to create percepts? Um, that certainly seems to be true. I mean, part of the story in my talk uh, um, was, that, uh, was that there really can be two parameters for a molecule interacting with a receptor. Uh, uh, for a long time, everyone's considered that the main parameter for uh, a ligand is its affinity to a receptor, which effectively tells you how strongly it wants to bind to it. 
and we know that ligands and receptors have a very wide distribution of uh, of these affinities. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also very clear that in uh, more recent evidence is that uh, there's a second parameter, which in pharmacology has been called efficacy. Mm -hmm. And this tells you once a ligand has bound to a receptor, how much kind of activity does it give downstream mm -hmm. to an ORN. Right. And so that's related very much to your question that if you have, for instance, uh, molecules that are binding there, uh, but they don't necessarily contribute much to a to a um, to a uh, uh, to, to a neural response. Then mm -hmm. this is a classic so-called antagonist, which mm -hmm. is effectively filling up a space, right? Uh, and 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 sort of creating a blind spot, really, mm -hmm. right? And um, up until now, uh, up until the last five years, we didn't really know about these antagonisms. Um, and as you can imagine, they're uh, they're they're kind of a bit scary, in experimentally, because in order to be able to see them, you have to look at all possible mixtures, mm -hmm. and you have to see how certain molecules may be blocking other molecules. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only really in the last five years that we've started to appreciate that, in fact, these types of antagonisms could could indeed be uh, really widespread in mm -hmm. our faction that. Uh, basically, our neural response is nowhere near the linear addition of just adding on lots of different odors. That mm -hmm. There's all sorts of these nonlinear competitions and interactions that are taking place, and this is probably what defines right. olfaction. Mm -hmm. So that might also mean that the, the response of glomeruli, mitral cells, and so on is reflecting a, a much more complex flux of binding and unbinding of, of of very broadly um, shaped ligands. Certainly, certainly, right? certainly. So, and, and, and how the, they interact. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even said anything about the so-called odorant binding properties, which mm -hmm. live in the mucosa. And these these OBPs are doing two things. One thing they're doing is, uh, in, in quite a clever way, shifting the sorption spectra for odors out there in the air phase so that we can detect odors uh, that are hydrophobic they don't want to be in the liquid phase uh, we need to be able to detect those as well so that's a solution to from nature to get those into the liquid phase so that we can interact with them and another thing they do they're very large uh, proteins they have they themselves have selective bindings to different uh, chemicals and so it's actually an extra layer of uh, building specificity and tuning into the system to create more information mm -hmm. so it's um really quite an exquisitely layered sequence exactly. of events that mm -hmm. deliver the certain subsets mm -hmm. of molecules in certain places in the epithelium to be processed. But these odor binding molecules, is there a belief that they in turn set up a local dynamic in the mucus layer or are they just like transporters? I think you can think of them more like transporters because mm -hmm. the mucosal layer is very thin. It's only a few microns. Mm -hmm. And their main job is to basically shift the sorption spectrum to get those hydrophobic compounds into the liquid phase mm -hmm. uh, and transport them to the mm -hmm. binding site so that they can be... You see, they're probably not traveling lengthways. There probably isn't time, really, for mm -hmm. them to, say move them to different portions of the sheet, for instance, mm -hmm. or something complicated like this, right? Okay. So no, there, there are other mechanisms mm -hmm. for that. For instance, the fact that you've got preferential sorption means that uh, some odors are staying in longer in the air phase and some shorter, which means that 
you've already got a nice sort of almost like um, postal service selective delivery mm -hmm. of molecules in certain places depending upon right. how much they want to be mm -hmm. sorbed. Uh, yeah, but I was more thinking you could also imagine that these uh, these, these uh, binding molecules in turn, for instance, set up a competition rela competitive relationship. For instance, if you have binding with a molecule of a certain kind that mm. it leads to, mm. let's say, uh, signaling systems becoming active that would change again probabilities to bind with other molecules or not. Yeah, it's quite possible that there's some sort of interaction between those at the receptors. I don't think it's really well understood. Mm -hmm. And for instance, um, even antagonism is not understood at all well because, um, you know, the simple-minded naive theory would be that an antagonist sort of fills the binding site on a receptor so that yeah. so that another ligand with higher efficacy cannot bind in that same place. But it seems quite likely that, uh, in fact, um, there are these there are the, uh, there are more complicated mechanisms which are called dimers, which effectively means that uh, they may not uh, fill the main site. The main site may still be available for uh, preferentially or high affinity binded compounds, but that these um, antagonists may actually bind onto the receptor in different places, mm -hmm. and by doing that actually change how the conformation of the protein, so in extremely complex ways mm -hmm. that the protein can change its uh, folding dynamics according to the binding to mm -hmm. signal different stuff. So there's all sorts of complexities there. But in terms of your point about the dynamics, that's well taken because there's also these other group of compounds in the mu mucosa called odor degrading enzymes because a very good question is how do you get rid of these mm -hmm. odors after binding well, exactly right. there needs to be a whole set of other uh, molecules out there that are effectively uh, uh, basically removing these signals and terminating mm -hmm. the signals so it's a very exquisite balance of exactly. all of these molecular processes mm -hmm. going on to right. to both mm -hmm. um, initiate the signal mm -hmm. and then terminate it as well right. in a timely fashion it's, it's actually it's already amazing to see right that the, here we're looking at let's say a very advanced variation on in some sense the most primitive form of sensation we know because for single cellular organisms, uh, you have, you know, mechano sensing or chemical sensing, and mm. that's what it started with, yeah, right? Yeah. So, and if you, if you just look at it already at the level of this mucus layer, the very first point where olfaction mm. really starts, the exquisite, exquisite orchestration mm. of all these different pathways and interactions is very impressive. But then, now, of course, we want to go a step up and start to think about, okay, how does this in the end lead to the encoding and representations and detection of odors in, in the environment? And so the, the first thing, of course, we, we want to understand is, okay, what, what's really this, this molecular language? What, how would an olfactory system in the end really, if you want, decompose molecules? What are the key features of molecules our olfactory system is sensitive to? Yeah, so there's some very nice data sets. Um, uh, I think finally olfaction is coming into the 21st century of sort of uh, data sharing. And there are some very nice uh, data sets with many different odor conditions and optical imaging on the receptor surface. So we can, using these methods, we can uh, directly see actually what the, for instance, calcium levels of activity are in mm -hmm. different portions of the receptor mm -hmm. sheet. Um, and uh, large data sets which have shown uh, how different portions of the sheet are responding in different ways to different mm -hmm. groups of chemicals. And um, it's very clear when you look at these sorts of databases that different portions of the receptor sheet are responding 
um, to different groups of compounds. So there are sort of, you can see, common properties of, uh, of molecules uh, that, uh, that, that may be preferentially tuning uh, or uh, mm-hmm. activating different parts of the receptor sheet. Uh, and so this is leading to the idea that there is a kind of chemotopic mapping of mm-hmm. the receptor sheet. Rather than the receptor uh, sheet being mapped onto physical space, as it is in, say, vision on the retina, the mapping seems to be a chemotopic mapping. Mm-hmm. So we talk about different molecular features being mapped to different areas. Right. And this may be for a couple of reasons, uh, a number of reasons, actually. One reason is this sorption thing that I talked about that uh, compounds with higher uh, sorption parameters so they like to be in the uh, they like to be in the liquid phase they're more hydrophilic mm-hmm. those those will be uh, those will basically absorb into the earlier parts of the receptor sheet as you sniff so they'll be sort of more delivered to the front end of the receptors uh, uh, where they live in the uh, in the mucosa and other compounds that are more hydrophobic um, would be would be delivered later, mm-hmm. but further back in the uh, further back in the receptor sheet as you sniff, and there are other reasons is that these this family of uh, receptors that I talked about. In fact, it turns out that there's uh, at least four classes of these. Although this is currently under debate, but there's uh, two very very clear classes, uh, class one and class two, which correspond to fishoid receptors, which are in fact uh, are left over that we have. Uh, from when we were fish, they're dedicated to detecting uh, non-volatile compounds largely. Mm-hmm. And they are exclusively expressed in certain zones of the receptor sheet. And so, as you can imagine, this leads to uh, another form of chemotopic mapping right. uh, where you get a preferential response. And these, these fish-derived receptors yeah. would then go for the higher Dalton molecules because they're, these are the ones that are less volatile. Um, no, not necessarily, because the whether a compound is hydrophilic or hydrophobic depends more on um, uh, actually the charge on the molecule. Mm-hmm. So it's more to do with the uh, the 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 sort of asymmetry. Well, in no, the but molecule. you said they went for the non-volatiles or the less volatile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was wondering then whether the, the fish, these fish-derived receptors, are also sensitive to molecules with, with higher. Uh, well, there's two things that deter- that determine sort of volatility. One is the molecular mass, mm-hmm. and the other thing is whether they like the air phase or the liquid yeah. phase, which is the sorption profile. So it's yes. really those two things together okay. that determine. Uh, so in your in a fishoid receptor, they would be exclusively compounds that can that that they have sorption parameters that they can never make it into the air phase really I- right. at room temperatures mm-hmm. unless you started boiling them or had a lot higher energy. Right. Okay, but so now we have a zoning, if you want, mm. of the epithelium. Mm. And the zoning might correspond to different properties of molecules, like their cyclization, their carbon number, bond saturation, yeah, exactly. branching, substitution pattern, functional groups. So are, are these the key chemical features of these molecules that you would map onto these zones? These are at least um, <clears throat> these are at least a number of key uh, features. They're very the, those ones you've just mentioned are very important. Um, this has uh, been another area of a crucial study. There's um, databases. Uh, there's some very nice software that you can download for public use called uh, Dragon, and uh, for pretty much any molecule uh, you uh, might. Uh, care about you can go to this package and it will give you something like um, uh, 
I think it's about four or five hundred different uh, exotic descriptors for a molecule, branching, uh, all sorts of things that you can't imagine. So a huge number of possible descriptors because, mm -hmm. of course, you can describe a molecular uh, structure in an almost infinite mm -hmm. set of ways that you might choose to describe that, right? So, um, so these databases and chemists have been very carefully characterizing different descriptor mm -hmm. or, or what you might call molecular determinants. And then, of course, uh, you can play very interesting games like um, look at all those odorous compounds and look at all the descriptors. Mm -hmm. are, there, are there certain descriptors that may be more important for certain areas of the receptor sheet and others that aren't and so on? Mm -hmm. You can play games like this and you find that um, indeed there are. Um, but you also find that um, all of these descriptors are highly redundant. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is that... Um, you know, you don't find, for instance, that there's one and two, one or two descriptors that sort of uh, uh, that sort of uh, tell you very uh, orthogonal or decorrelated information. They all tend to be measuring a, a similar thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so, if you take, for instance, a PCA or principal component analysis of the contribution of all of these discriminants to what you might think of as a perceptual description of an odor you find that there are large numbers, you know, because mm -hmm. they're highly redundant. So, right, exactly. So you can... Uh, you, no, but so yeah. this is really interesting, right? Because, so here we go, if you want, I mean, this is a little bit proto-science, right, where we just develop descriptors of reality. Mm. So the, the same holds for chemistry. So here we are for this huge collection of descriptors. Um, but now, on the other hand, you'll see also, you see two things, right? So, on the one, there's a zoning, a zoning in the olfactory system that would suggest that the properties of these molecules are, in, in some sense, also mapped onto this, um, this chemotopic map. And that, of course, would also give you, or let's say, this should give you some sort of hierarchy of which descriptors actually are helpful or are, from a biological perspective, uh, relevant. Uh, and, and which are indeed that sense redundant. That's one thing. And then, but then you showed, which is also very interesting, that if you analyze in, in more detail these descriptors and the odor space that they define, that actually it's much lower dimensional than these descriptors would suggest. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's another very interesting story, although that one that I showed in the talk was actually uh, about analyzing perceptual descriptors mm -hmm. for a corresponding odor. So mm -hmm. you can do another thing, which is uh, quite a lot of fun, uh, which is to take uh, take a large number of molecules, such as in the Dravnik's database, where there about 150 different molecules were taken. And uh, they then used uh, a large pool of trained uh, olfactory specialists, and they asked those specialists to uh, uh, describe each of the each of these uh, 150 odors using a panel of 100 approximately 150 different descriptors, mm -hmm. such as um, musky, grass, grassy, nutty, so on. Uh, so large numbers of these. And then you can also look at the space or similarity of those for different mo molecules. So you can plot individual mo uh, molecules in a high-dimensional space, and you can look how similar or dissimilar are these dis discriminators. Mm -hmm. So you can make a sort of odor map of perceptual odor map in terms of what you would expect is that you'd expect those points uh, close in this map to have similar perceptual properties, mm -hmm. and therefore you'd expect them to have similar molecular properties, right? So it enables you to play this nice game where you can look at different portions of this map and see 
are, is, is there a nice continuum here in certain molecular properties that are moving this perception in this direction or whatever? Uh, but what you find, which is very interesting when you do this, which is studied by Kulikov, uh paper uh, about three years ago, was that when you analyze all of these 150 descriptors, you find that um, that they're placed in uh, in a in a in a in a, in a much lower uh, dimensional space. Mm-hmm. So it means that it, uh, effectively they're they're highly correlated, right? Mm-hmm. So and and um, they sh- they found that there was a, 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 a at least in a two dimensional manifold was able to explain something like. Um, 60 or 70 percent of the variance of this mm-hmm. for, of this 150 dimensional structure can actually be explained quite adequately right. uh, reasonably well in this two-dimensional mm-hmm. manifold which is spread it looks a bit like a potato chip yeah. sort of shape mm-hmm. within this within this higher dimensional space mm-hmm. and so I think it's it's very exciting actually I think we will find um, in, in in the future olfactory studies we're going to find that there are all sorts of these um, um, lower dimensional mm-hmm. manifolds, which which is kind of the answer to solving the olfactory code to find mm-hmm. out there has to be some underlying right. similarities and structures mm-hmm. in these things. Yeah, this is of course where we want to get to, yeah. right? That one thing that's of course interesting here that that now now with this last analysis, you could argue well, maybe human experience of olfaction is relatively low dimensional, but mm-hmm. what's what's complex mm-hmm. are all these descriptions we glue exactly. We glue on top, and it's, on, on top it's of also it. the language, right? Because yeah, this is limited by language. That so. the language just complexifies exactly. the experience. But what's amazing about olfaction is that we have no other way to describe certain uh, olfactory cues other than it's like other things, right? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the interesting restrictions in the language because we say it's like grass or mm-hmm. it's like this or like that right right? we don't have we don't it doesn't seem that we have any kind of independent really independent descriptions of Mm -hmm. others other than just likening them to other things right Right. yeah so there are no intrinsic qualities that we can well use it turns out when you look at this map um because you can look at this manifold and then you can look at what are what are the actual qualities Mm -hmm. and how how does this manifold actually uh represent the odors when you do that you find some interesting things so you you see that the main dimension of this map very strongly correlates to pleasantness and unpleasantness Mm -hmm. so maybe this is the only true you know underlying uh, parameter whether right. we actually have a hedonic uh, mm-hmm. or whatever the the valence is for the for the actual exactly right, right yes mm-hmm. which well, would be interesting because then you would have let's say valence and intensity mm. no and this would mm. be very compatible with just how we uh, can describe also the emotional states yeah right we would think of valence and arousal yeah or something yeah. like this yeah. and then within such a two dimensional space you can find all sort of very complex emotional descriptors yeah, yeah? yeah. but but so so but the point i want to get to is then um how what does this now mean for this idea of zoning of 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 the receptor neurons in the epithelium would that match would it match in any way the structure of this descriptor space or not um yeah that's a really good question um Yes, I think it probably will. I mean, there are uh, for the, 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 uh, another approach to describing the chemotopic mapping, and this is work by Kaniezu Mori, who's been very influential in the field, has has made a, a, a very interesting argument that this space, although it's a chemotopic space, uh, may also be structured behaviorally. 
So mm -hmm. certain behaviorally relevant compounds mm -hmm. may be represented in certain parts of the bulb and other and other differently behaviorally relevant compounds in other parts. Mm -hmm. And you would expect those compounds to have similar perceptual kind of descriptions. Right. So it does seem that the the current thinking of uh, mapping of the first stage of odor representation in the olfactory system comes down to both chemotopic in terms of molecular properties uh, and probably uh, behaviorally uh, behavioral relevance in different mm -hmm. ways, uh, which will then, of course, have some type of relationship to perceptual qualities. Right, exactly. Now, this is cool, right? So now we've had a bit of an idea of the structuring of this, of mm. this sort of the receptor layer. Mm. There's a structure. And now, if you if you if you measure, and these are classic experiments that you also also showed, if you measure the response of of single receptor neurons to different kinds of odorants, different kinds of molecules, you see that actually they're not so specifically tuned. So what's the, what's the deal there exactly? Yeah, no, this is this is a very good point. What what you find when you when you look in detail at each one of these uh, receptor types is that they uh, they tend to have uh, what we call broad tuning as you say, to uh, large numbers of compounds. But yet there are also a, a, a sort of um, smaller smaller subset, I guess, which, um, which are more narrowly tuned. Mm -hmm. So it seems that the current story is that, in fact, the olfactory uh, system has a variety of broadly tuned and more specific tuning. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I showed in the talk, which was some work that I did with Manuel Sanchez uh, quite a while ago, actually 10 years, where we applied an information theory mm -hmm. uh, approach uh, to uh, basically describe the accuracy that a neuronal code at the epithelium would be able to reconstruct the original stimulus. Mm -hmm. And when you do this for a very high-dimensional stimulus like we have here with large numbers of compounds, you find that, in fact, this is exactly the perfect strategy that you need because uh, you want to have certain uh, receptors that are uh, very broadly discriminating between groups of compounds, mm -hmm. so they're very broadly tuned, uh, and then you want other receptors which are doing more fine uh, discriminations between, you know, more specific sets of compounds. And that if you have this sort of two layers and some continuum between them, uh, in information theory terms, this gives you the best possible ability to reconstruct the stimulus. Mm -hmm. So you, you it get in, a, in a high dimensional space. Mm -hmm. Now, if your problem, the reason why this is interesting is that uh, if you restrict the problem to a lower dimensional space, such as I know uh, Bill Hansen, um, Peter Mombats were here uh, last week, um, and for instance, Bill will be working, or the animals that Bill studies will be working in much more restricted uh, dimensional space because um, mm -hmm. ecologically maybe there's fewer fewer uh, compounds which are more relevant to uh, you know ethologically and ecologically for the animal. Uh, then in those types of olfactory systems, you tend to find that there are more specific receptors mm -hmm. because you don't get this advantage of having lots of broad tune because you don't have the similar very high dimensionality. Right. So your your prediction is that the ratio of broad or specifically tuned receptor neurons would scale with the odor space you have to classify. Absolutely. And the right. complexity of the world within you, within which you have to operate, right? Because the, this coming back to the point I made at the beginning, that if you need this very xenobiotic property where 
you have to be able to uh, basically associate uh, any any potential molecule out there in the world with mm -hmm. a particular behavior or whatever then you then you you very much need this uh, ability to deal with very high dimensional stimuli mm -hmm. as if you're an insect there's probably no real requirement for these sorts of things uh, in in certain settings certain right. uh, but ecological now, to go back to this uh, this theoretical study you just uh, described in some sense you have, you have a fairly linear decomposition of the of the olfactory uh, perception problem, right? Because you basically you, you assume, look, I have a bunch of, I have a stimulus, stimulus comes in, I have my receptor neurons, uh, they feed directly into some sort of response, presumably in the glomeruli or the mitral cells, and then I'm going to use some estimator. You don't you don't need to make any any commitments where this estimator resides in the brain because now we, we're doing an information theory game, mm. and now I get an estimated uh, stimulus right and then the game is that you really want to f understand the parameters under which this estimated stimulus is as, as equal or similar as possible to exactly. the real stimulus so you have a minimum the error is minimal exactly all right so th then of course the, the usual game is that, well the response will have some noise okay and this noise will have certain properties um so and because of this noise, I can I cannot really inversely map anymore my response to the stimulus because exactly right. Mm. But okay, when the noise is is, is big, it corrupts enough, the yeah? original exactly. So now now you use this this Fisher information approach to decompose this problem and understand what's the optimal strategy exactly. Right. So how does this Fisher information uh, approach help you with this? Well, Fisher information uh, effectively. Uh, characterizes and quantifies very precisely two things, which is both um, your sensitivity to a stimulus, so the sensitivity that um, a receptor has to a stimulus, uh, and also how that uh, sensitivity is corrupted by noise. Mm -hmm. Okay, And then it also uh, gives you another very nice thing, which is how does that add across a population? Right? Because you might know that for one receptor, but how do you know uh, how all that sort of information adds when you have a population? And so Fisher information precisely quantifies that effectively. Mm -hmm. So for an array of uh, receptors, it quantifies very precisely for each receptor what the contribution is to uh, to the sensitivity for each one of the dimensions and also how that is corrupted by its own noise. Mm -hmm. And uh, effectively, when you characterize that, um, there are some very nice results, uh, particularly by um, Kramer-Rayo, which tells you that the inverse of this, this, this matrix, which contains all of this information about the noise and the sensitivities, uh, basically the inverse of this uh, directly tells you uh, what the best uh, what what the best estimator can do in mm -hmm. terms of uh, being able to uh, reconstruct the original stimulus, mm -hmm. um, and so therefore it tells you that it doesn't matter what the biological system is, it will not be able to exceed right. this limit. And so it, it's nice, very nice, I think, in the sense that it it provides a very defined limit on a psychophysical test that you might do. Mm -hmm. To tell you, for instance, if you had a stimulus and you changed it a sm small amount, so the just noticeable difference, the just noticeable difference or the JND in the psychophysics experiment would relate directly to this uh, inverse or this Kramer-Rayo mm -hmm. bound which comes. So it makes a very nice firm prediction 
for the architecture of a neural system and uh, and and what the limits would be mm-hmm. for an animal right? have you been able to uh, to validate any of this any of these predictions um well in terms of relating it to psychophysics um that's something that's something we should we should push forward but in this experiment we're only really doing it as a game rather than because it doesn't really matter what the precise value mm-hmm. is because all we were really interested to know is uh, what are the actual features of the receptors mm-hmm. which either give you a good or bad ability to do this. Right, right but now um, you do assume that, that in this case you only have a linear interaction mm. between your receptor nerves, exactly. so a linear combination, yeah. right? And is yeah. that not a very strong assumption? It is quite a strong uh, assumption. I mean, you're, what you're saying is that a receptor is... Um, is 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 giving a linear response to a set of combinations. So, for instance, uh, things like uh, antagonism are kind of out, as we just discussed, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so, uh, so you you um, uh, you you have to go to a sort of second order. You could extend it to a second mm-hmm. order, which we haven't done. Uh, but really, it was a quick study to just show what the features are, and I think that the main sort of interest in it is that the the, the simple properties of the simple-minded approach is that you get this sort of mixture of diversity in the outputs together mm-hmm. with uh, specific receptors mm-hmm. that, that very clearly matches what mm-hmm. you see in all experiments from, yeah, so in from some insects sense, and in, uh, in some mammals, sense, you so. try to make sense of this idea of population coding with mm-hmm. broadly tuned receptor neurons that have, again, variability in this tuning. This is, this is the key point of this study. Exactly. It's just to right. show that it, you know, what what the biology is doing is a sensible thing mm-hmm. uh, in terms of when you're facing a very high dimensional mm-hmm. input. Right, which is interesting, right? Because very often you hear you hear uh, people uh, making these wild claims, like how about how uh, suboptimal, inefficient natural systems are. But I think certainly with this example, um, you'll be hard pressed to do it better. Mm-hmm. Would yeah. you agree with that? Yeah, within your within your space, within mm-hmm. your defined space of the problem you're dealing with. Right, exactly. What would but be interesting to compare, which we haven't done, mm-hmm. is to then compare these measures maybe across animals, right? Sure. To show that uh, uh, different levels of specificity like we were discussing mm-hmm. may be more or less re- relevant to the dimensionality mm-hmm. of what you're dealing with in, right. your, in your environment. Mm-hmm. But now also the other thing, though, with your, with your model, there are two things. On the one hand, you do assume that after, let's say, one stage of, of processing, one of transformation, you can re- reconstruct your stimulus, right? Um, that's your quality measure. Well, we don't assume that it actually does that. All we're saying is that this places a bound on what any subsequent neural processing would mm-hmm. not be able to uh, go beyond this effectively, any estimators. Provided that, that any subsequent step is fully isolated from any preceding step, it has to be a cleanly modular system. Um, no, I mean, it just provides a limit on the given. But what it's really saying is it provides a limit given the noise that was introduced. So it's based on the assumption of what the noise was sure, at the but, periphery. But for instance, if I would have a subset of projections that would also percolate up this processing hierarchy, bypassing noise stages or uh, following a different kind of noise dynamics... Oh, okay. Well, the noise we're thinking about is only at this stage the noise at the receptors because all we're characterizing is the receptor population. Okay. We're not saying anything about subsequent mm-hmm. processing. So all we're really saying is 
the question we wanted to answer was what what should the tuning of receptors be mm -hmm. not necessarily the okay. subsequent neural processing right? right which is a different story mm -hmm. the reason why you can't really do that with this measure is that the subsequent neural processing has all sorts of complex time dynamics mm -hmm. as you say quite rightly there's all sorts of maybe noise properties there in complex ways there's all sorts of attentional processing and so on so uh, at least in this formulation of, uh, let's say, thinking about the Fisher information, it would not make a whole lot of mm -hmm. sense to okay. try to extend it beyond mm -hmm. uh, subsequent neural processing right, exactly. things. We're just really trying to limit it to mm -hmm. what the receptors themselves are doing. Right. But now, what, so what's the signal to noise level you find in these receptors? Signal to noise? Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, obviously, it's Poisson. We find Poisson firing uh, quite close uh, to sort of cortex, mm -hmm. uh, sort of Poisson. I mean, as you know, in cortex, I think the Fano factor is slightly greater than Poisson, so they mm -hmm. show more variability. This story with the variability of firing, mm -hmm. you sort of see that also in receptors. So you see large amount of variability in the firing, mm -hmm. uh, beyond slightly beyond Poisson firing. Okay. But, so that, but the other thing... So that's the noise. As far as the... As far as the receptor population is concerned, mm -hmm. it's both the noise and the in the in the firing. Right, exactly. So, yeah. But now the other thing is that in this case, this is under I assume a constant drive with a single molecule, but the real system will be operating in the face of a continuous fluctuating stream of of molecules bombarding these different receptors with varying binding kinetics and so on. Sure. So. Would your would this this statement on this upper bound of of processing capability mm. also hold if we start to generalize to this more realistic input condition? Sure, I mean it may not. Uh, there's all sorts of complex dynamical processes going on there, and the fact that it's a first order description mm -hmm. is is just the simplest minded thing you can do in order to right. in, in order to uh, just look at the properties of the mm. system. So I don't think we make any claim that. Um, that maybe it has a great expectation to match very precisely with the psychophysics, right? Because also you don't know how much uh, the information either gets selected or not selected mm -hmm. downstream, right? Because you have all sorts of selection processes as well. Right. So mm -hmm. when you come to perceptual processes, um, you've got all sorts of selection of the information mm -hmm. going on. So... Um, yeah, and you don't have complete information at the periphery to to be able to say the exact state of the system to ever really be able to test very precisely mm -hmm. uh, uh, how exactly accurate accurately this would be characterized. Right. right, but then so but then the other issue that actually we haven't touched upon at all is that okay we we have sort of talked about these molecules, um, the ability to to detect them, the reliability of the system, um, but. Actually, a key a key issue for olfaction is concentration, right? So, hmm. so um, at what concentrate? How how does an olfactory system really deal with varying levels of concentration? I mean, it can go from from really minute, that's a homeopathic quantities to full saturation. So it has to operate in a huge dynamic range. So so how does it manage to do that? And what kind of sensitivity do we get? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of uh, a number of tricks for this. Uh, the the system, as you say, is in a it's about the most remarkable I think in the uh, in the nervous system and having to deal with such incredible uh, dynamic range. You've got mm -hmm. about probably at least ten orders of magnitude 
mm-hmm. uh, in concentration, which is phenomenal, phenomenal uh, uh, degree of variability. Uh, and it's pretty clear that the olfactory system has to use all sorts of tricks to deal with this. One of the tricks is, going back to the original point, if you have a very wide variety of affinity distributions, then if you do this, um, you can still have some receptors binding, um, or their binding is changing even when the concentration is very high. Because right? mm-hmm. you might, even though you probably have, uh, for a given odor, you probably have, you, you'll have some high affinity receptors which will get bound very quickly, lower concentrations, and they will quickly become saturated in their response, right? Which doesn't inform you anymore. You don't get any more information mm-hmm. out of those because they're just saturated. Uh, but then, if you've got this, also got this population with lower affinity uh, receptors, then even though the concentration is increasing a lot, you're still getting some information from those mm-hmm. uh, lower, you know, lower affinity receptors. So, by using this very wide um, range of receptor affinities, you can still get um, information mm-hmm. through to the system that there's a change, uh, uh, which. Uh, which um, you can, that then gives you choices uh, in terms of the coding to still be able to at least receive the information over a large range. Now that's one strategy. Our study also shows by looking at these antagonisms, uh, and we we made a, um, again with Manuel, this was work with Manuel in in Madrid, Um, we looked at uh, these receptor antagonisms uh, and there are some very nice and simple pharmacological equations uh, that we could apply to olfaction, which hasn't really been done um, at all before, uh, using these efficacy models. And uh, there's something called an operational model in pharmacology, which is to used effectively to describe uh, drug binding mm-hmm. you know, on cells right. and so on. And, but in so in these studies with, with Manuel um, sanchez Montanes. Mm. You, you you started to develop more this notion of a ratio code. Yeah, exactly. So, so what does that exactly mean? So what you find is where, when you apply these um, very simple uh, description, then uh, what you get is that you get a, effectively two parameters for each ligand, both an efficacy, which tells you how much it contributes to a cellular response, and its affinity of binding. And when you th- when you operate uh, in this way or think about olfaction in this way, uh, you get this nice property that um, something with a low efficacy could be could uh, could effectively block a space. And you can get uh, when the receptors start to become filled, you can get effectively a competitive binding mm-hmm. uh, regime where you get certain sites uh, are being filled but not contributing, for instance, or um, or other sites that are filled and contributing a lot. And what you find when you look at the equation is that it very simply drops out that instead of the response of the cell uh, being determined by the... Um, by the distribution of the concentra- uh, concentrations of the different ligands within a mixture. Uh, in the high regime, when there's this competition, it actually turns out that it then becomes the uh, depending upon the ratio of the concentration. So it's no longer concentration dependent, mm-hmm. and it's in this mode that we call ratio mode operation of the of the neuron when it's op- operating in this high occupancy regime. That you uh, you lose the concentration uh, dependence and you gain a sort of concentration invariance property, mm-hmm. uh, which we've shown 
holds over very uh, large numbers, uh, orders of magnitude. So mm-hmm. it's although you might think uh, it needs some very complex uh, neural processing to maybe mm-hmm. solve this problem, it's kind of a nice result in the sense that maybe just directly at the periphery in terms of competing for sites may actually solve this problem for you almost for free, right? Well, nothing, well for free, no, nothing's for free, Well, for right? free in terms of the neural processing, right? Because you don't have to... Okay, uh, that's fair uh, enough, yeah. but... Uh, this works under certain assumptions of binding and receptor mm. distribution and so on, right? So you could also measure, imagine, imagine that in these highly saturated regimes, you actually have so few unoccupied receptors left that the probability to actually exploit this invariant or concentration invariant coding, that, that probability is then very low. Um, how do you mean exploit? Well, so you're saying, look, the trick is that um, at some point you have saturated your receptor sheet, but still there are few receptors available that you can can use. And those can then tell you uh, about the presence or absence of a certain odor Mm. independent of the concentration. Exactly. Right? But now I'm saying, well, that's that's fine. But if I've saturated my receptor sheet for, let's say, 99%, then the probability for these uh, okay. unbound yeah. molecules to still hit those receptors might be so low mm. that actually I will not be able to exploit my, my mm. concentration invariant encoding. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So, But you have to keep in mind that you have a very wide variety of affinities as well. So whilst, whilst there may be a subpopulation of receptors that are forced into this high occupancy regime, mm-hmm. it, it's quite likely that it's the case that it's probably only a small subpopulation out mm-hmm. of the total and that there will be large numbers of other receptors with lower affinities that will not therefore be in a they will be in a relatively low occupancy okay. and so they are still very much sensitive mm-hmm. to chemical changes so if this is true and we're still we've fitted it to the data that we've received and it matches the data that we've received on antagonism for instance from tahara and an earlier uh, paper by anderson on insect receptors all the data we fitted uh, works uh, but if it's true it predicts that uh, there's a very strong prediction that there would be likely uh, for any uh, uh, natural odors at um, uh, naturally relevant or behaviorally relevant uh, conditions, there will be a subpopulation in this high mm-hmm. occupancy regime exactly. that, that will give you, uh, if you like, the relational features between a complex odor. So, for instance, in a coffee, uh, be, you, you, you know, the quality of the coffee is very much about what is the ratio of mm-hmm. of this peak of this compound compared to another compound as to whether that's a pleasant coffee for you and you don't necessarily need to need a certain concentration to know that that sort of that works across mm-hmm. many orders of uh, concentration but on the other hand uh, you want probably other parts of the olfactory system that are able to tell you about concentration right and that's it's already right. been demonstrated that in fact the olfactory system this is one of its amazing properties right that in fact that you can separate, um, you can separate both concentration information for certain ligands, and also its uh, sort of conf- what we call configural properties, mm-hmm. which is basically the sort of combined percepts. Mm-hmm. So, on the one hand, you've got a sort of gestalt, sort of uh, odor or flavor, mm-hmm. which is to do with all these sort of ratio properties, which are invariant across concentrations. And on the other hand, you've got this sort of opposite of gestalt, which is able to sort of tease them apart mm-hmm. and, and look at the separate component concentrations mm-hmm. 
And with this mechanism, you, you then have a population. When you combine this mechanism with a, a wide range of affinities, which we know is in the olfactory system, you have this very nice feature that you would have these sort of subpopulations doing right. different things to either support either gestalt processing or non-gestalt mm -hmm. processing. But now, with that separation, would you imagine that there is a possibility for the brain to control this in a more top-down fashion so you get something like an, an olfactory attention? This is a very good point. I think uh, probably not at the binding level, right? But we do know that certainly the feed-forward gain in these different pathways from the different receptors, we know very well that this is... At the is level of receptor neurons now? Not, a, not necessarily at the receptor. Well, there is some evidence that there's even feedback, actually, mm -hmm. to the receptors, okay? It's still not really well studied. Mm -hmm. But we know uh, very, very surely that the readout of the glomeruli themselves, which is effectively at an early stage of that processing, is reflecting the excitatory drive of mm -hmm. the common set of... Uh, olfactory receptors, we know that those are under very complex uh, inhibitory control and gain control, uh, top-down imposed from the peripheral mm -hmm. cortex and okay. uh, through centrifugal you know, mm -hmm. feedback coming, coming back to the system. We know that that has a very strong influence on the type of codes that go forward to the higher level. So it's very likely that there's in addition all sorts of then selection mechanisms. If you could imagine there are subsets of these um, different... Uh, uh, receptors, uh, you could imagine that then downstream you could select between those that exactly are, right. are either in a ratio mode or, oh, or in a, right? in a mm. concentration mode, for because, instance. Yeah, yeah. But that, so that might be another way to mm. deal with that problem mm. that's not only feeds forward and, and dependent on the yeah. receptors themselves. Right? This could be synergistic mechanisms. Sure, sure. All right, so, so now we have a bit of an idea how the... How, um, we get our first responses in, and then in, in the modeling work that you have been doing, you try to also get a clear idea about the actual encoding of now these odors at the level of factory bulb. So what, what, what can you tell us about the encoding that then happens of these odors? Sure, yeah. So the main feature in the olfactory bulb, which is really the first site of neuronal processing of all this stuff coming in from, from uh, you know, 10 million uh, receptors on, in the olfactory uh, 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 mucosa, as it comes through the the skull, the cribriform plate to make contact with these glomeruli. And the first thing that happens is uh, they converge into these glomeruli structures um, and um, they are innervated by these mitral tufted cells. And basically the story is that one single mitral tufted cell is innervating a single glomerulus. So they're acting as a, a readout, if you like, of a single chemotopic feature because they're only innovating those uh, common GPCR or receptor types. Mm -hmm. okay? And then all of those uh, mitral receptor um, population, which are acting as the main readout of the bulb to the higher centers like piriform cortex and so on, um, are under very uh, uh, quite complex lateral control. So, for instance, um, um, a, a, a mitral cell... Um, is under control from what are called granule cells, which make lateral connections across the bulb. And it's even been demonstrated that granule cells may even connect across the whole length of the bulb with mm -hmm. quite specific connections, in fact. So uh, there's this network of uh, quite specific connections that are going laterally. They're forcing an inhibitory drive on the uh, mitral cells. And there's at least two effects of this. 
uh, well, three really. One effect is that um, it's been demonstrated quite clearly that um, this lateral inhibition uh, cause, uh, has a sort of um, on-center, off-surround type property. So, uh, because it, it, it's also um, it's a complex type of inhibition, and it ha- it's a unique um, synapse called a dendrodendritic synapse, which is actually pretty unique in the whole brain in these granule cells. Uh, you don't really see it anywhere else. And the effect of this dendrodendritic synapse is that a mitral cell will activate one of these lateral granule cells, uh, which will then in turn inhibit a distant mitral cell target, but it will also excite itself back because it's a two-way didactic uh, Mm -hmm. synapse. And the effect of all of this anyway is that you get a sort of on-center, off-surround type property Mm -hmm. because it's sort of inhibiting... With a sustain. With, a with, a, with a, some nice time dynamics, yeah. exactly. And it's been demonstrated that this very nicely decorrelates and sharpens the uh, representation of these odors uh, at this stage in the olfactory bulb. Mm-hmm. So that's one clear thing that happens. Another clear thing that happens is because of this um, very nice balance of excitation drive coming in from the receptors via the glomeruli with this lateral inhibition, that you're getting some very complex dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, in fact... The olfactory bulb was the, I, I think it's fair to say, actually the very first neuronal recordings in, in the brain by mm-hmm. Lord Adrian at Cambridge mm-hmm. measured also the first oscillations in the olfactory bulb. Mm-hmm. And oscillations are the uh, very key feature and they and they come about uh, due to this balance of uh, 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 lateral inhibition and uh, excitatory right. drive. Yeah. So there's these very complex um, sort of dynamics going on together with these sort of sharpening things. Mm-hmm. And the third feature is that we, as we mentioned before, that these granule cells also act as targets for the centrifugal feedback coming back from the higher centers to selectively change this lateral uh, uh, inhibitory mechanism to effectively uh, selectively change the gain in different channels mm-hmm. so that you may listen for instance more to some types of chemical information and suppress others right right so it's exactly. already been shown to be very important but now do you see these these mitral cells and and linked to this complex network of granule cells that are, and they are sampling mm-hmm. the glomeruli are they just adding up activity and emitting spikes or is the encoding of these odors more involved like, for instance, does it depend on population responses? Does it depend on the temporal structuring of these responses? Yeah, I think evidence shows, uh, for instance, Detlef Schilder at Göttingen has shown uh, that the latency of the mitral cell responses is very crucial to different compounds, uh, which you might expect, right? Because if you've got this dendrodendritic uh, thing, you can you have these periods of inhibition. So... What what can happen is that some mitral cells can selectively shut down other mitral cells mm-hmm. uh, in these channels for certain periods of time, and so what you seem to find is that if you look at the population of um, olfactory bulb mitral cell responses, that you get these different latencies in the different channels, and it's been demonstrated that these latencies are very important for coding mm-hmm. the different odors. Right? Do um, these latencies also express uh, the binding kinetics? Um, <clears throat> you could imagine that well, a, um, a receptor with high affinity to a ligand will trigger a short latency response in its target. Um, yeah, I, I think that's quite possible, but I think it's it's also uh, reflecting 
the the timing of these lateral uh, inhibitions and the timing of the mm-hmm. dendritic no sure that, that, that sits on top uh, of that probably both of those together mm-hmm. the other very interesting feature which was um uh shown very nicely by uh, Rainer Fredrik mm-hmm. uh was what's to show that the the spike timing of uh, individual mitral cells in this oscillation uh, in the olfactory bulb uh, may well uh, be very important for coding different aspects of a complex odor, mm-hmm. right? So, for instance, if you're firing early on in the cycle uh, with with a, with another set of receptors, this may have one meaning, and if you're if you're firing with another subnetwork mm-hmm. within this olfactory bulb space later on in the oscillatory cycle. This may mean another thing. And so he was uh, crucial in introducing this idea of multiplexed odor codes Mm -hmm. for mixtures. So maybe you have a mixture where uh, you have uh, different synchronous firing between different subpopulations at different points in time. And that these uh, these may well be telling higher centers all sorts of information mm-hmm. about um, uh, grouping or binding of different chemical properties right. to 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 tell you about you know more much more complex mm-hmm. chemical stimuli that we know after all is like coffee with four hundred compounds or right, whatever. Exactly. Right? So. Okay. So now so now we have a bit of an idea of the biology of of olfaction. Uh, in, in sort of a parallel existence, you also worry a lot about building. Artificial olfaction, mm. artificial noses, uh, olfactory machines, olfactory robots, and so on. So, what are the challenges there exactly? Um, yeah, so it's a kind of yeah parallel life uh, to to kind of build technology. I mean, uh, similar to similar to you actually. That uh, I think we both follow this idea that if we really understand it, we can build it. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's go and see the proof by can we take these principles put them into some type of operational system, test whether, you know, what they do. Uh, and it it introduces a whole bunch of challenges that uh, a lot of them actually have very little to do with the biology, right? Mm. Because, for instance, uh, just getting uh, a good set of sensory signals to start with, right, and reliable uh, sensory responses is already a big challenge in mm-hmm. chemical sensing. Uh, the idea of um, so-called building... Uh, chemical analysis systems along the lines of following the biological system is not a new idea. There was a paper in Nature mm-hmm. in 1982 by, uh, by um, uh, George, uh, Krishna Persaud and George Dodd who, who introduced this idea of putting together um, uh, groups of uh, different tuning chemical sensors in arrays and to look at population codes of these mm-hmm. responses um, which um, which is clearly similar to how this is solved in the biological mm-hmm. system, um, and you know. So then, what you need to do is you need to you know you face a challenge of uh, finding different chemical technologies that give you nicely orthogonal and decorrelated sort of sensor responses, um, and that are sort of robust, mm-hmm. you know, and give you reliable signals um, that have sort of uh, reasonable noise properties. Uh, can be easily uh, deposited, uh, can maybe uh, uh, have a wide range of uh, different molecular interactions and have sort of broad tunings to different things. Um, uh, Maybe reversible responses, so you don't really necessarily want sensors that don't ever recover from Mm -hmm. an interaction, right, or things like that. So there's a whole bunch of issues with chemical sensors. And I think whilst things have 
are improving and um, there's a whole there's a, actually a massive range of chemical sensor technologies you can use mm -hmm. um, there are clearly many issues for for instance one of the main issues i think in chemical sensors is this um this uh, concept of sensor drift mm -hmm. so we know that pretty much any chemical sensor it's its properties will be quite non-stationary over time. So it may have one set of tunings at one particular point in time. You may come back there in a, in a month's time and have a completely different set of tunings, baseline parameters and so mm -hmm. on. These can change in very complex and difficult uh, to predict ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but on one level, okay, so this can be quite frustrating perhaps when you try and build these systems. But on another level, we also have to appreciate that... Um, Every individual person has pretty much a unique, we haven't discussed this, but we all have a unique genetic fingerprint of the subset of thousand uh, olfactory receptors that we express individually. Mm -hmm. So coffee actually smells completely different to you than it does to me. Uh, well, but maybe not, because earlier you said that there's actually a low-dimensional manifold. Sure, maybe we map it onto something that we can describe in exactly. similar terms, but mm -hmm. that what you can guarantee is that the receptor information that comes into your system is completely different to mm -hmm. that that comes into mine, right? Right. And But you're right that this has to be somehow mapped. That's kind of my point, really, is mm -hmm. that somehow the olfactory system has to take care of this and map it all onto right. a stable representation mm -hmm. of something that means and coffee, And one that's right? unitary, of which you can say exactly. that's coffee, not that exactly. you say, oh, it's 400 yeah. compounds. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And the other point is that actually uh, in a month's time, because these olfactory receptors are basically the only receptors that are in direct contact with the outside world, they're, they're you know they're they're really at the tough end of things, unlike mm -hmm. most neurons which are very nicely protected in the in the neural systems, uh, that they basically suffer damage. Mm -hmm. And so, in a month's time, uh, you and I will both have a completely different set of uh, olfactory receptors than those than we have now. Now, they'll be similarly genetically determined. Mm -hmm. We'll have a sort of similar subset of the total because that's fairly determined. Even that may change. But uh, somehow the olfactory system has to deal with all of this. And in a sense, that's kind of like drift, right? Because right. Uh, we already know that, uh, for instance, as the uh, olfactory receptors are developing, that their tuning is changing. They actually become more broadly tuned over time. They start more specific. They become more broadly tuned. And so there's a whole drift process actually mm -hmm. going on in the receptors as well, right? And, okay, that drift process is probably very different from that that we see in the receptors, but it's still a challenge that the mm -hmm. neuromorphic uh, system might nicely be able to solve, right. right? Because if you look at a classical engineering solutions to this, then it hasn't quite... Uh, totally solved all of these issues. Right? Now tell so me, now, what are the different approaches people have taken to solve this problem, technically? Of drift? No, and chemical sensing. Let's start with that. Okay, well, yeah, that, I mean, that's a very broad question, right? Uh, you can go all the way from developing biosensors mm -hmm. uh, through to developing uh, highly specific sensors uh, for particular ligands that you're interested in with a problem, mm -hmm. all the way through to developing sort of electronic noses uh, uh, using, you know, arrays of broadly tuned compounds through to uh, using sort of mass spectrometry ideas where you're trying to uh, basically measure specific molecular features directly mm -hmm. like we were talking about originally. There might be mass features or 
through to using gas chromatography effects where you're trying to select between different molecules due to how much they sorb into different materials mm -hmm. or not. There's a whole bunch of different okay. strategies. Uh, but no, so what's the sensitivity there? of these systems compared to the biological system? This is a great question. So, um, well, actually, we did a study right a long time ago, which together, remember, that um, we, 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 we had this question in mind uh, when we first came to this nice artificial moth project that we ran, mm -hmm. that we were wondering, well, okay, so we know that the moth is very sensitive overall. It's like the world's specialist in olfactory detection. Um, might we expect that, uh, in fact, its receptors are, you know, uh, orders of magnitude more sensitive mm -hmm. than, say, for instance, a metal oxide sensor? That's right. Which is like a commercial one you just yeah, buy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is the most common one that get, tends mm -hmm. to be used in these kinds of arrays. And indeed, what we found when we took those measurements was that, in fact, no, you know, that these sensitivities were kind of more comparable than you might expect. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a surprise. But you also, of course, in doing any comparison like that, you have to take into account that we're not necessarily giving that receptor its ideal ligand. Uh, sure. We, we, we yeah. may be at particularly one extreme end of the affinity for that particular ligand or efficacy mm -hmm. parameter. Mm -hmm. You know, it may have other ones that it's much more sensitive to, but it's very difficult to tell unless you measure everything, mm -hmm. which is impossible. No, but, wait, but, but there's an important point here, right, that sort of intuitively you would say like, well, you know, if I have to increase the sensitivity, I should be just optimizing at the at the sensor front end of this whole system. And if I just have high affinities there, I'll be just fine in my detection. Uh, but no, maybe no, but no. maybe that's not the right philosophy. No, you really can't do that because then everything binds to everything, right? And then you don't have any information anymore. Mm -hmm. So uh, already in the story that we saw with the antagonism, as we talked about before, is that it really, to get this uh, ability to do this over a range and to, to also be able to get the combination in a single olfactory system of sensitivity together with high specificity, mm -hmm. to get those two things together and to get them over a broad dynamic range, you cannot just be sensitive to everything, right? You have to you have to have this range of bindings so that you can basically you have to you have to have it so that you can have a kind of attentional mechanism mm -hmm. to right. to be able to focus in on mm -hmm. particular. No, aspects. but it's another aspect that uh, the point is maybe if you want to get a highly sensitive olfactory system, the real tricks sit more at the processing end of of things than at the sensor yeah. front end. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's certainly clear that there's so many tricks that are played. Uh, you know, by the biology uh, in terms of getting um, a sensitive, specific, robust, mm -hmm. uh, you know, signal representation out of this, that the more I look at every level of the system, it's completely optimized to mm -hmm. achieving just that. Right. Event. But now the amazing thing is that in one of your projects with your collaborators, you, you built an artificial nose where you specifically looked at this whole, uh, the impact of, of the mucus layer in, in processing of olfaction. So why did you add that feature to a chemical, an artificial chemical sensor? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, in existing electronic noses up to now, uh, really there are two forms of information that have been exploited. Uh, the first uh, mechanism is this uh, population code. Mm -hmm. So for any particular complex or simple molecule, you've got a particular fingerprint of... Um, receptor responses mm -hmm. this is uh, clearly this is what you would call a spatial uh, a spatial code 
mm-hmm. of, uh, of of receptor population tuning that give you that give you stimulus dependent information, enable you to tell tell what's out there in the world. You've got a second mechanism clearly, which is that the each of those receptors or sensors is giving you um, in itself uh, specific temporal information. So this gives you sort of. Uh, on mass gives you a sort of a temporal code, temporal population code, as you might call it. But then uh, there's this very, uh, very much less studied aspect of olfaction, which is that um, not only are the the sensors themselves maybe giving out temporal information uh, depending upon what they're binding with, uh, that uh, in fact the stimulus delivery itself may have yeah. some nice temporal properties. And so we went about building what we called an artificial mucosa, and this was with um, collaborators at uh, University of Warwick, inclu- mm-hmm. including Julian, Julian Gardner, who build microsystems. So I, I don't build any sensors myself. I build these sort of strategies for processing and architectural ideas for these types of systems. And so we specifically, you know, we, it was a very nice example of where you see a few neuroscience papers and this basically inspires you to then go and build a technology mm-hmm. that uh, you think can do better than what we have at the moment. And what we ended up building was um, uh, uh, effectively a microchannel or an artificial mucosa where uh, you have a sort of sniff. So rather than in many electronic noses, you're sampling for long periods of time with very controlled flow rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a very different strategy where you just effectively have a pulse of odor that, mm-hmm. f- that, flows through a, that flows through a microchannel. And then what you have inside that microchannel, similar to as we talked about in the nose, is you have a, a, muco- a thin mucosal layer, maybe a few hundred microns uh, thick. And this can be of different materials, but uh, you can take ideas, for instance, from gas chromatography that mm-hmm. use what are called stationary phases. And these stationary phases are specific materials you can go and buy off the shelf and they have very beautiful selective properties, partitioning properties mm-hmm. of uh, certain groups of compounds, uh, such as hydrophobic or hydrophilic compounds, would like to be in those stationary phases or like that they would like to stay away from mm-hmm. them. And so what you find is that as you have an odor pulse going through a column with these kind of materials, you get uh, very beautiful temporal profiles in the stationary phases uh, at different points in time that depend in very complex ways uh, on on these different sorption properties mm-hmm. and other properties of the molecules that uh, impose an additional time dynamics on the mm-hmm. stimulus. And particularly when you've got um, a complex mixture, like a coffee, then imagine you've got, uh, what you've really got is you've got 400 of these pulses going through simultaneously and you get a beautiful sort of spectrum. You can think of it like a, a mm. kind of prism system right. where you take in a complex mix and it splits it in some way right, exactly. in, in a spatiotemporal mm. code and it imposes this upon the receptor population. Mm. And what you find when you look at the receptor sensor responses when you distribute them across this type of physical arrangement is that you get absolutely beautiful and stunning, very complex temporal information mm-hmm. that's exquisitely uh, stimulus dependent right because right. it depends upon exactly where that molecule was but with at how a particular much, point in time uh, with how much does this improve so so basically you translate this whole idea of a zoning of the receptor mm. sheet and a mucus layer that again controls the binding dynamics of, the, of your ligands exactly so so you now translate that to a to a technology um also basically to to, to test its impact uh, on processing, but what was really the 
the improvement in classification that you now observed? Yeah, I mean, what we found was very interesting. So if, if you had, um, it's kind of an interesting result. We found in all cases, this obviously improved discrimination. So, but purely because you've got three mechanisms in total, and the, compa- the correct comparison to do is to compare it to just when you have the first two mechanisms mm-hmm. without this nice, right. funky, spatiotemporal mm-hmm. delivery yeah. concept. So you do the direct comparison of just saying, well, when you deliver the molecules directly onto the sensors without any spatiotemporal short, uh, sorting of any type, um, how does your information compare? And mm. so again with Manuel, um, who very cleverly extended the Fisher information formalism to include time, so that we can actually now see not only uh, when different uh, stimulus-dependent features and the noise properties are telling you at a particular point in time, you can actually accumulate that information mm-hmm. over time to tell you within particular time windows how much information you've collected about the stimulus and how accurate your reconstruction is of it. You can actually use this formalism then to compare very in a very precise way, in a very quantitative way, uh, how you would have fared if you tried to discriminate just the from the first two mechanisms compared to when you also use mm-hmm. this additional sorting. And what you find, in fact, there's a theorem in our paper that shows that there's no situation ever, it's no possibility uh, that you can ever exceed the three mechanisms with the first two. Mm-hmm. So there's no situation in which you can ever do better than the three, okay. right? Which is kind of common sense, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're, you're adding more stimulus-dependent mm-hmm. information... Right. Uh, so you can never do worse. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's all already good news. Uh, beyond it's more that, like a lower bound. It's like a lower so bound. So what's your upper bound? So the other very interesting point is how – so then the other question is how much better you do totally depends on the complexity of the task. So if you set, if you set your olfactory system then a very simple task, which is maybe, I don't know, imagine a very, very simple task of um, you just have a single component mm-hmm. and you just – at one point in time, you push that through your microchannel, you get a set of receptor responses, and you discriminate that as one odor. Then you separately do that for a different odor. This is a very simple discrimination mm-hmm. task yeah. uh, with, with, with two classes, so you've got a 50% chance. Uh, and, you, you know, even the array by itself, depending upon the chemicals you use, will trivially separate this. Then you'll find that by adding that spatiotemporal thing, you're not really going to improve it, right? Because mm-hmm. you're already almost certainly probably at right. 100% success anyway, right? So what you find, what we found in our study was that when you push it more and more, then uh, the effect of this third mechanism uh, makes more and more of a difference. So, for instance, if you give it a very complex task, mm-hmm. which you could imagine one of the hardest tasks might be um, put through the system a coffee mixture with 500 compounds simultaneously and the task of the chemical receptor array and the subsequent readout is to detect the presence or not the presence of one of those compounds in mm-hmm. the 500, right? Right. When there's a massive overlapping spectra of yeah. all of these. This is um, a phenomenally difficult problem because you've got all of these receptor responses are convolved over 500 components Mm -hmm. in a relatively short period of time of responses over just a few seconds. And somehow, over this relatively small sensor population, you may, uh, I think in our microarray, I think we only had 30 sensors, right? Mm -hmm. So we only have 30 channels compared to 10 million in the the biological system. Out of all of this, you've got to somehow uh, detect 
one of these mm -hmm. components. This is a very challenging pro problem. Um, and what you find uh, when you apply this separation at the front end with this third mechanism is that you find that um, this third mechanism uh, becomes more and more important. So we found that at least one or two orders of magnitude improvement in the classification and the error, the reduction in the error was two orders of magnitude. And we, I think we only tested a couple of either an easy and a complex task, and I think there's a lot of interesting ideas to push that to harder and harder tasks. For instance, attentional tasks where maybe the target odor is changing over mm -hmm. time, things right. like this. Right? Okay. But now compared, compared to, let's say, a standard sensor, like, like a, like a CMOS-based sensor or so, what, what, what's your performance? If I, if I go classify coffee with a standard off-the-shelf sensor and now this one with its artificial mucus layer? Yeah, I mean... You know, we've got in our first paper just to show that when you do it within, with and without, you get an improved performance. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have these this other theoretical study to show that in certain situations you do uh, uh, about two orders of magnitude better in terms mm -hmm. of the error. Yeah. Uh, and that's the sort of level of what we've quantified okay. so far. So, so in mm. terms of practical... So that still has to happen. But how do you fabricate yeah. this mucus? Uh, yeah, so in fact it's quite a challenge because a lot of these stationary phase materials are quite poisonous. So uh, they had a big challenge in the lab of how to get these stably inside mm -hmm. a microchannel array. Um, the Warwick people made it very beautiful. They effectively used a more advanced uh, microlithography method of a 3D printer effectively mm -hmm. to grow grow a microchannel. As you can imagine, we we have a great interest in, say, also growing a rat nose structure so maybe of course. maybe mm -hmm. there are well it's almost certain actually that there are uh, very beautiful aspects of the uh, elaborate structure of the nasal turbinates of a rat nose which give even more tricks in there for for instance how it controls turbulence and lamina flow mm. and all sorts of other stuff that I haven't even talked about right that can be stuff in the future perhaps mm -hmm. but right now you just basically grow uh, you grow in a 3d printer a very long microchannel and um, you introduce this material under high pressure to get mm -hmm. it to uniformly uniformly pass along this microchannel to deposit but just, as but a thin layer have you considered also to use mucus from biological we haven't systems? yet but of course this is this is a fascinating idea right because they already have things like obps in there exactly right and so on and mm -hmm. other things and odor degrading enzymes mm -hmm. but of course they're also not necessarily particularly stable right so yeah, these are other things to take into account mm -hmm. but yeah it's a fascinating area of all sorts of different materials that you could mm -hmm. potentially put in there probably anything you can use Pretty much any chemical material with a liquid aspect will have some sort of selective mm -hmm. properties for groups right. of compounds, and they will change the sort of array receptor properties in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of possibilities to have sort of parallel versions of these noses, right? It doesn't yep. have to be one nose. You mm -hmm. can have arrays of these noses with, I don't know, peanut butter coatings, snot mm -hmm. coatings, mm -hmm. Various different stationary phases from GC columns, God knows what, right? right. And they're exactly. all giving you different selective answers. Or mm -hmm. You can think of it as different windows on the chemical world, right? Right, so exactly. Sort of mm. Seeing a unique little portion mm -hmm. of a chemical world. Right. But now, do you believe, I mean, you foresee also the robots of the future largely will be equipped with, with artificial noses? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a good question. There's been a lot of efforts, actually. I mean, not just on robots. So for at least 20 years, people have talked about things like, will there be smell sensors on your mobile phone? And uh, in fact, at some point, there was a lot of talk about that, particularly mm-hmm. in Japan. People were very keen to know, you know, how, how is my uh, uh, breath smelling today? You know, maybe there's a need for having these kind of very cheap sensors in a in a in a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, as you know very well, there's there's uh, all sorts of domains for this in terms of robot robots for environmental sensing and so on and. Um, uh, there are all sorts of aspects in terms of human emotion that are ov- obviously important in in odors. So if you're going to ever going to ever make a, a robot that understands humans, it probably needs to understand odor as well, because there's some sort of estimate of something like 95 or 99 percent of our um, uh, olfactory uh, consciousness is subconscious. So mm-hmm. it has all of this sort of background biasing on our state of mind. Right. At a particular point mm-hmm. in time, it's probably a robot would need to know about this, right? If it needed to understand humans, mm-hmm. um, and there's all sorts of applications in flavor industries and so on. So there are clearly uh, a lot of applications, but I, I think there are, it's always going to be a niche. Mm-hmm. Thing. Okay. So, so Tim, to to finish up, I mean, so you you're you have the one foot in the biology of olfaction, the other one in in, in technology of olfaction. And also you use the technology to understand the biology and the biology to advance the technology. So it's a very unique position you're in. So in, in, in the study of the brain and in our, in our attempts to synthesize brains, what should be Tim's law that we have to follow? Uh, well, it may be a bit obvious, but uh, to construct is to prove. So mm. I think um, looking at the biology uh, and making, making sense of those principles by having them uh, in reality in front of you mm-hmm. operating in concrete ways uh, is is crucial mm-hmm. because uh, I know too many models of too many different phenomena that uh, you never know how robust they are going to be in a realistic setting or whatever. So right. that would always be my, my uh, advice. Okay. And the, the another thing, so five years from now, I'm going to come to Leicester to visit you in your lab. Um, and um, I'm going to confront you with the hypothesis you're going to generate today. So the question is really, what, what's the one hypothesis you really you really want to commit yourself to today? And five years from now, I can come and see if you actually were able to validate it and what the outcome was. Yeah, I, I think an, under, an underrepresented aspect uh, for the future is to prove that... Um, Attentional processing in olfaction is very important. Mm-hmm. So at the moment we don't really know much about our attentional processing. We don't we don't really know about it much in biology, mm-hmm. and we know even less about it in say machines or mm-hmm. deploying this. And so the prediction I would commit to is I'd I would hope that in five years I could take you to my lab and uh, prove to you, demonstrate that I can make um, uh, olfactory machines that attend to mm-hmm. different parts of this beautifully complex molecular world that we have mm-hmm. and that uh, depending upon operational demands at particular points in time it would be able to give you uh, uh, say uh, unique reports on uh, or windows on this very complex right. universe exactly. and I would like to be able to prove to you that uh, 
uh, it's not just making it up, but it's looking at different facets of uh, mm-hmm. of, a, of a very complex signal. That, right. uh, and that, and that, hopefully, this could be done in a um, in a responsive sort of mm-hmm. way to a particular task. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really exist at the moment. Exactly. All right, Tim Pierce. Thank you very much for this yeah, conversation. Thanks a lot. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomedics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.